0: That's the, that's the great thing about digital minimalism is that this is, not, this is not something that requires that you have to go acquire something or have uh, abundant money or abundant free time. It's, it's really just about intentionality. How much time do I want to spend on this screen versus other things?
1: Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us, about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Cal Newport is one of the world's great experts in attention management, in making sure we can become more productive and live happier lives. He is, in short, the kind of person I most hoped to speak with when I started the Good Life podcast. Uh, Cal has published eight books, is a professor of computer science at Georgetown University, and is somebody who manages to live a life of focused attention in a world constantly competing for our attention. His first book was How to Win at College, And his most recent book is A World Without Email. I want to talk with Cal during this conversation about the arc of his work and the way in which his his focus has changed. Cal, welcome to The Good Life Podcast.
0: Well, uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So when I look at uh, the arc of your uh, books, they seem to be moving from the kind of how to win the rat race uh, approach through to uh, uh, how to change society. In other words, you seem to be making an evolution from Tim Ferriss to Yuval Noah Hariri. Is is that how you feel you're, uh, you're evolving and you're thinking about the world?
0: Uh, it's an interesting question with a complicated answer, perhaps. <laughs> so, I mean, the first thing that helps in, in trying to understand that evolution is probably dividing... My corpus into uh, three different groups. So, you know, I wrote these first three books aimed at students when I was a student myself. So, I wrote this How to Win a College, How to Become a Straight A Student, uh, How to Become a High School Superstar. I wrote the first two primarily as a university student. I wrote the second one as a graduate student. And that was very much pragmatic, as you say, Tim Ferriss, how to, how do we do things better? And it came from a very personal place, which was I'm a student. I'm taking on a lot of student loans. I want to do this well. Why aren't there serious books about how to do this well? I'll write them. So it's a kind of a classic, pragmatic nonfiction story. Uh, Then I wrote in 2012, uh, really a pivot book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which looked at this question of career satisfaction. How do people really end up loving their work? And I took a contrarian look at that question. In the U.S. in particular, there had been a real focus on this idea that you should Follow your passion, and I really took that out to the uh, took that out for a bit of a ride and said, "Wait, where did this idea come from? What's it claiming? Do we have any data to support it's true? Is this really how people end up passionate about their work?" That pivoted into the third group, which is the more recent group, which is a trio of books on technology and culture: so Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and this most recent book, A World Without Email. And those are books. I think this is probably the evolution you're seeing, where there is advice. I mean, ultimately, I want people's life to be better. I want them to be more fulfilled, more meaningful, more effective, more productive in work, whatever it is that people want to do. But the targets of my attention in looking at that question it became very broad. And that's where you will, you will jump from something as narrow as, here's how you should organize your time during the day, which you might see in deep work, to something as broad as the influence of Uh, autonomy culture instituted by Peter Drucker, changing the whole way we try to cite the goal of productivity in the modern knowledge workforce. And it's all over the place from Thoreau Mm. to turning off things on your phone. And so I, I will go wherever I find useful territory to explore. I will be very diverse and heterogeneous in the topics of my attention. Uh, as I try to understand my, my topics. So that's really where I've been in the last three books is technology, culture, the way it interacts, the way it, it affects us negatively, the way it can affect us better, how we can retake control of that, what's going on, what are the forces, what can we do personally? All of that is mixed together. Uh, and that's where that's where I really am right now.
1: Uh, you're a computer scientist rather than an economist but i see a lot of economics in your books when i read them uh, in particular that uh, that notion of doing one really interesting thing well uh, which seems to characterize uh, a lot of your early books the idea of the the relaxed superstar uh, of uh, in how to be a high school superstar uh, do, you, do you think in terms of uh, comparative advantage, do you think that's an, an imp- uh, a notion that sometimes we forget in our desire to, to be all things to all people?
0: Uh, th- I think it's a good observation. It definitely comes up in my work a lot, The an economic frame for understanding things that we otherwise cast as more m- almost mythical. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you see this as you pointed out in High School Superstore, you see this uh, for sure in So Good They Can't Ignore You. Or I'm taking something like being impressive in high school superstar, I'm taking something like enjoying your job and having passion for your work, and trying to understand it through a more quantitative or economic frame. And it's not so much that I think economics is the the de facto language we should use to understand everything. It's it's more that I really believe often in trying to bring some structure to things that are otherwise emotional or instinctual, because when we rely just on emotion or instinct, uh, instinct rather we can get dragged into interesting cul-de-sacs or not optimal cul-de-sacs in our lives. We can get taken down false routes. Uh, we can end up in situations where we're more frustrated than we are um, effective. So that, that's definitely a mechanism uh, I apply again and again is let's put some sort of structure around this otherwise maybe emotional or intuitive or subjective type of experience so that we can try to make some progress.
1: Another place where I see economics in your work is the notion that there's diminishing marginal returns to social media and uh, you may make the point in digital minimalism that a lot of people uh, get, get plenty from 10 minutes a week of Facebook but by the time you're spending an hour a day you're, uh, you're uh, going beyond where you're getting anything any reasonable returns. Uh, and then you point out that, uh, that we ought to start off with uh, a digital detox, uh, a month off social media, uh, and then coming back with a, a digital declutter. Uh, but, but isn't there a, a challenge that, that social media is um, perhaps um, more like uh, crack cocaine than uh, Coca-Cola, that it's very hard to consume it in small amounts?
0: I think both of those things are true. So I mean, if you look at the addictive qualities of something like social media, a psychologist would probably characterize it as a moderate behavioral addiction. So unlike a chemical addiction, there's not an actual substance crossing the blood-brain barrier and therefore directly modifying your brain chemistry. Those, of course, are the, the, the hardest types of addictions to shake. Those are addictions in which, of course, your body is at danger when the substance is removed. We don't have that fortunately with social media, but we do get a behavioral addiction with these technologies, which is typically defined as, I will use this more than is good or healthy for me if it's available. So it is causing harm in my life. And I understand that it is. Like, I should not use this this much, but I'm going to use it anyways. And it it fits really well into that category. Those are much more tameable, I would say, than a, a substance or chemical addiction uh, because it's a it's a primarily lifestyle psychological fix. In, in essence, you have to fill in the hole that social media is currently papering over for you with something more substantive, uh, and then you can move past it. But the the good news about that is that that process of trying to fill in these existential holes that this uh, addictive tech use is papering over, the, the process of filling those in is actually directly improving your life, directly improving its depth and the satisfaction. So the, the, the cure in some sense is actually Uh, quite positive. So I am very wary about the allure that these devices have, but I'm also very optimistic about people's ability to push back on them. Because again, to go back to your original point you made about this technology, the real issue I've been reporting on since probably 2013, 2014, is we are surprisingly incurious, or at least we were until recently, surprisingly incurious about the role of these technologies in our life. We just said, I don't know, this thing exists. I can think of something that makes it useful. That's the last I want to think critically about this. Let me just turn on the phone and rock and roll. <laughs> we really had no critical self-reflection on how much we wanted to use this, what we wanted to use, why we wanted to use it. And, and for a while, I was shouting to the wind about it. Uh, today, I seem almost cliched in how common sense it is what I'm saying, but I've never changed what I was saying. I think the culture just caught up to me.
1: Yeah, and uh, I've spoken to Jonathan Haidt on the podcast about uh, his work on uh, particularly uh, teen mental health. Uh, was there anything that surprised you out of the Facebook files leak recently? Um, the thing that
0: I most noted in the Facebook files, and it doesn't surprise me, it's something I want to underscore, and I think it's been overlooked, is that these are self reports, right? So this is not like a lot of the data uh, Jonathan talks about. This is not we sifted through a large data set and pulled out a signal that was was implying a robust correlation between heavy social media use and a particular dependent variable that correlates with psychological harm. This was teenagers saying, this thing makes me unhappy. I tried to kill myself because of Instagram. I have body issues because of this particular technology. And it's what does surprise me about this debate, because I... I I've talked to John about this. I'm actually working on an article about the debates going on in the research literature about this. Is there's this huge academic debate happening in the international, especially the psychology community, where people are looking at data sets and arguing? Well, you know, depending how you uh, analyze this data, uh, how you how you quantify technology use and harm, you can make this signal get stronger or not strong, and maybe there is an issue, maybe there's not. Meanwhile, the teenagers are yelling to us this hurts help. And my analogy is when you have self-reports, this is not like there's a benzene in the plastic that is subtly raising the background rate of cancer. And we need to really look at the data carefully because you don't realize it as a consumer of this, You know, using these types of plastic bottles that you're getting sick. This is not like that. People are directly reporting the problem. And what I said on my podcast recently is, if you see someone in a hole yelling, help me, the right answer is not well, you know, statistically speaking, most holes aren't that deep and uh, for most people holes are not a problem. You go and get a ladder. Because they're right now saying I need help. And so that's the thing I underscored about those Facebook reports is when you have the population itself saying this is hurting me, you mobilize. It's time to stop preening about, well, if I do my regression differently, I can make a signal go away or to try to sound smart by saying like, well, we we have to be careful about, you know, the context in which we talk about social media people are in the hole. We got to get a ladder. We got to get them out. And uh, I think Jonathan Haidt and I are probably in the same place there. This is an emergency that requires an urgent response.
1: So I'll come in a moment to some of the systematic uh, society-wide changes you talk about. But you've also been very thoughtful about what we can do as individuals to be better users of devices. Um, you don't have, use social media. You don't have any social media accounts, which uh, for a, uh, somebody in their late 30s is, uh, is kind of unusual. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, you, you also talk about uh, some of the strategies around uh, a digital detox, digital declutter, don't click the like button. Uh, But one of the things I find most fascinating is your call for having uh, more uh, craft and more walks and more of these uh, tangible physical activities. There's something quite old-fashioned about the sort of life that you suggest we lead. Can you talk a bit about those new activities that you believe ought to fill the space that's now been taken up by us being human network routers?
0: Well, you know, we could replace the word uh, old-fashioned with really human. You know, just something that humans do, <laughs> you know. We, we, we want to we stay aligned with our underlying humanity to the degree to, to which that is satisfying uh, for us. And often there's things like high-quality leisure, right, where it, it's very intentional use of your time outside of a professional context that gives you great reward but maybe also requires great effort. Uh, humans find that the sort of non-instrumental application of craft, and appreciation, we find that to be really fulfilling. Um, I also argue that making interactions harder makes them more meaningful. So that's another interesting effect that we didn't think about when we designed tools like digital social media platforms is that actually our minds in some sense use the, the, the measured sacrifice of time and attention involved in this interaction to try to assess how important it is. And so in some sense, to actually spend a couple hours, to go out of your way, to go get, you know, uh, buy that bottle of beer you know your friend likes and bring it over there and have a conversation and drink it with them, that's much harder than just shooting some text messages back and forth. That's much harder than commenting on their Instagram posts. But your mind says that that's because this must be an important person. Wow, we're really socially connected. We're feeling more a part of something. We're feeling more connected. So, so there's these various activities in various places categories of our life in which more quality, slowness, more depth, more intentionality focused on value makes life seem more human, right? It makes us feel deeper. Convenience and efficiency often don't have a big role to play when it comes to some of the most satisfying experiences we have as individuals.
1: And this is one area in which you seem to now deviate from standard economics. Uh, we spoke before about comparative advantage in, career, in a career sense, but you advocate uh, spending time with cooking, fixing things around the house, having tangible physical projects, which uh, many economists would say, no, 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 you should just buy in all those things and focus on the one, that, uh, one skill that you're, uh, you're great at. Uh, why don't you believe in comparative advantage in this context?
0: Well, I do in the professional context. So you know I think I think for sure, if you're in a professional context, you would rather outsource out the skills that you're not as good at, so you can develop or spend more time at the skill that you are actually most valuable. But in some sense, this is exactly the type of economic analysis that I'm using to justify my approach to leisure. so if if you'll uh, stick with this argument for a second, I, I talk about this in digital minimalism that the the returns from different activities, let's say non-professional activities, are not evenly distributed. You know, they, these tend to be, you know, maybe they follow roughly speaking some sort of power law or something like this, but there's gonna be a, a small number of activities that are highly meaningful. Uh, and then a lot of activities that give you a small amount of value. They're a little bit meaningful. So, you know, spending an afternoon on a hike with a friend may be like a very high value activity, whereas going through Instagram pictures my friend posted is a low value activity. I think the right economic analysis here is their scarcity of available time. So the issue is if you are by default going to your phone or these low quality digital activities, you're taking up units of time and assigning to them low return activities that's swamping out time that you could instead of put high return activities there instead. So almost always the right way to maximize the total value in an economic sense you get out of your life is to focus on a small number of things that give you a huge amount of value and be very wary about small value things that could otherwise take up that time. So this is the essence of minimalism, and therefore it's the essence of digital minimalism. Focus on what matters, ignore stuff that maybe has some value but not a lot, Because you only have so many hours to which to assign activities, so you want to assign the highest value activities possible. And these slower, more human, craft-focused, intentional activities often are much higher value in terms of what they return.
1: Having started the day uh, with a run in the bush this morning, I can certainly attest to uh, to, to one of your uh, calls, which is to spend more time outdoors and spend more time doing physical activities. And uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, running running isn't my comparative advantage, but it uh, it brings a great deal of, of joy. Uh, I'm wondering about the uh, the class dimension here. Uh, I uh, you talk about this attention resistance and uh, and about using devices more intentionally. My sense is that that conversation is largely at the moment an upper class phenomenon. Uh, and I think back to a, a report I wrote in 2001 for uh, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Progressive Policy Institute, which was on the digital divide. Uh, and all of the focus in that report was about the problem that uh, low-income Americans didn't have access to the internet. Uh, now it seems uh, that the, uh, the, the problem is that uh, there is... Uh, ubiquitous access, uh, and those who are scaling back tend to be at the the upper income end. Uh, do you get a sense that the the attention resistance is is mostly an affluent phenomenon? Uh,
0: that hasn't been my experience, and I would say I was actually a little That's bit. So, yeah, I mean, I've been I was surprised by it uh, when I went on tour for digital minimalism. This is one of the concerns I had. I said, OK, well, who is actually concerned with these issues? And certainly a lot of people within my circles were concerned, like, well, maybe this is a uh, maybe this is a white issue or maybe this is an upper class issue. So there was both racial, ethnic and class uh, potential divides here. And it's not what I experienced when I went on the road. Uh, I mean, this is actually it's a very universal issue uh, internationally different economic classes, different ethnicities, different races, I found that to be uh, quite a a sort of ecumenical type of issue that a lot of people in a lot of situations are worried about spending too much time on their phone and not putting that attention into other things. And it's surprisingly broad reaching. So I feel very good about that. I mean, you know, and bad. I feel bad because that means, yes, this is a problem everywhere. I mean, it would be nice if, if it was a problem that was only affecting a small number of people. But the good news is, is I don't think the solution in any way is isolated to only one group of people cares about it or only one group of people have access to it. That's the, that's the great thing about digital minimalism is that this is, not, this is not something that requires that you have to go acquire something or have uh, abundant money or abundant free time. It's, it's really just about intentionality. How much time do I want to spend on this screen versus other things? Even if that definition of other things is very different depending about whether you were talking, you know, about someone in India versus someone in Washington, DC, whether you're talking about someone who is a doctor versus someone who is, you know, a first year university student who barely has uh, any money to their name, Uh, that general approach, let me get intentional about how I want to spend my time, I think is resonating quite broadly.
1: So... Expand for me on one of the ideas that I think is most intriguing, uh, which is the notion of uh, conversation office hours. Uh, How can it make a difference?
0: Well, you know, I talked about before, harder interaction gets more value, at least as far as your brain is concerned. So what what brings us back from harder interaction? It's often actually not the experience of the the harder interaction, because once you're actually with someone, talking to them on the phone on that hike, it's actually quite satisfying and meaningful. The real issue is overhead, the overhead of actually arranging for when are we going to meet? How do I get you on the phone? So I'm a big believer in trying to set up structures that reduces the overhead of deeper, more meaningful interactions so that you can do more of them. And conversation office hours is one such approach. This is where there's certain times where you're just always available to take phone calls. So so the, the, the person I profiled to introduce me to this idea had this cue to his uh, commute in San Francisco. So it was a long commute. He would commute from down peninsula up to the city, which is a notoriously congested route. But everyone knew during that hour, I'm in my car, here's my phone, call me. You don't have to set it up. You don't have to say, am I available? I'm not going to be, I'm here and I'll pick it up and I'll talk to you. It's a small example, I think of a bigger idea, which is what can you do to make more meaningful interaction easier to actually initiate?
1: And uh, I want to move now into uh, your latest book, A World Without Email, which is really looking uh, not only at what we can do as individuals to, uh, to handle the barrage of email, but also what institutions can do to, to better manage uh, the, uh, the way in which email has, uh, has, has come to dominate the modern office. Uh, talk us through why email has, uh, has, has grown and, and what it's doing to, uh, to office work now.
0: It's a fascinating topic because it is a tool for which we have a very conflicted relationship. We love and we hate email. I mean, we love it in the sense that we don't want to use fax machines, right? I mean, it's like a very efficient tool. Uh, and yet we hate it because our whole life is dominated by this tool. So we have this weird dichotomy happening in our relationship with this tool. So what's going on? And I think if you go back and unpack the history of email spread and it's something I do in my book, it's also something I did um, in the pages of The New Yorker. If you go back and and trace email spread, what you see is that it spread initially in the office context in the 1990s for very pragmatic reasons. The pitch for email was asynchronous communication is obviously necessary to run a large office. Right now you're using fax machines, voicemail, and inter-office memos to accomplish this goal. Email's better. It's cheaper. It's faster. It has more features. That's right. So it spread. <laughs> it, it was a simple decision to make. Uh, yes, this we, we, we're already using these other tools. This tool is much better and it's cheaper. So of course we're going to adopt it. So email spread very fast in the first half of the 1990s. Once email was actually there and present in offices as a side effect, an unplanned side effect it nudged us towards a new way of collaborating that I call the hyperactive hive mind. And it's an approach of collaboration in which you say we can work most things out on the fly with back and forth ad hoc messages. Because that friction is so low now, uh, why not just figure things out on the fly? Just like you and I would figure something out if we were together in the same room trying to you know, build a piece of furniture. We just go back and forth on the fly ad hoc. Email made that possible at scale. Though no one really intended to work this way or said this is a better way to work, there were various types of dynamics that happened and just nudged us gradually into this mode of collaboration. The issue with the hyperactive hive mind is that if you have dozens of these back and forth ad hoc, unscheduled messages going back and forth, dozens of different conversations with these messages. It requires that you check these inboxes all the time because you have to tend to the ongoing conversations. You don't know when the latest message is going to arrive for most of these. So you're you're left by default having to check these things all the time. That has a huge cognitive cost. It turns out our brain can't jump back and forth between two things like that so quickly. And it fatigues us. It reduces our capacity. It makes us anxious. So we love email because of the original 1990s pitch for it. We don't want to go back to fax machines. We hate email because the hyperactive hive mind is almost literally melting our minds. We cannot go back and forth between inboxes and our work so much, but the hyperactive hive mind demands it. So we love it and we hate it
1: both at the same time. And one of the things that really struck me about the book was uh, your discussion of, uh, of two great productivity thinkers, Henry Ford and Peter Drucker. Um, how did uh, Peter Drucker set us on the wrong path and how might Henry Ford bring us back?
0: Well, so Drucker basically invented management theory. So in the, the mid part of the 20th century, he invented the idea that you can study how you manage things from a, an academic perspective and look at different ways to do it. And he introduced the word knowledge work. So he had done his initial work, he'd done this big work project at GM that led to a, a well-received book and he was very well-respected in the industrial world. And he noticed this shift happening, especially in the US economy at that time, towards work that happened primarily with people's brains. So away from building tangible things and towards adding value to information. And he really helped the world economy understand what knowledge work was. So he coined the term and wrote a lot about it. One of the messages he really pushed when he was introducing knowledge work to the world is that, listen, this is different than building cars. You cannot take skilled knowledge work and break it down into a seven-step assembly line that you can just plug anyone in to do it. It's creative, it's skilled, there's, there's mystery to it. Um, you have to give autonomy to the worker. And he was really pushing this message because we're used to this today, but in 1955, 1958, when he was writing about this, it was a huge, big idea. Leave them to do the work on their own, give them objectives, let them figure out how to do the work. This is not building cars. This is, you know, writing ad copy or computer code or doing industrial R&D, it's skilled and creative. And he was right about that. But we took that notion too far. So when we when we gave autonomy to knowledge workers about how they do their work, we also extended that autonomy to how this work was organized. We said that's up to individuals. Productivity is personal, right? Okay, so how you organize yourself and get things done, like that's none of my business as a manager. You know, read a Cal Newport book, read a uh, you know a David Allen book, read Stephen Covey. Productivity is personal. This idea of personal productivity emerged, which was a a hugely aberrant idea in some sense in the recent history of business. Um, and, and I think that's a bit of an issue because because we leave how we organize our work to the individual, that is exactly the environment in which the hyperactive hive mind thrives. And in a world where we say it's just up to you to figure out your work, we're going to fall back to whatever's most flexible and what's easiest. And I think that's why the hyperactive hive mind has taken hold. What I'm arguing needs to happen is we need to get more systematic as organizations about looking at this question of, wait, how really do we want to identify work and assign work and keep track of where the information is for that work and keep track of who's working on what? How do we actually want to communicate about work that's going on? Uh, What's the right way to actually do all of the overhead of work so that the people doing the work can do it at the highest level? And the answer is not going to be the hyperactive hive mind, but that's going to require a whole new rethinking of how work happens. And that's why I point to Ford because it's what he did in the world of automotive manufacturing. He said, I know we're building cars in a very easy, flexible way. I'm going to try to find out if there's a better way to do it that might not be as convenient and it might be a pain to figure out, but in the end, it might produce cars faster. We we, we need something like a at a very high-level abstraction here, a Ford moment to, to uh, unshackle ourselves from the hyperactive hive mind and say... How do we really want to get this work done? and it might be more structured and annoying than we're used to, but I think we're going to be much happier, much more productive, much less anxious, much less fragmented and distracted, and that's that's really what the world of work needs right now.
1: And it's that bit that uh, that I, I feel as though is still very much a, a work in progress for us as a as a society. But you do point to a number of firms that have implemented quite interesting strategies. Um, talk to us about uh, extreme programming and how that operates.
0: Well, in extreme programming, it's, it's an offshoot of what's known as agile project management methodologies, which is a whole family of solutions to the question of what's the right way to organize work in the context of computer programming. Um, and so, what agile has in general is these are computer programmers. It doesn't tell computer programmers how to write computer code. So, it respects that piece of Drucker. It doesn't say, we can break down this algorithm you're writing, the seven steps that anyone can do. No, it, it's programming remains very creative. There's different levels of talent and experience, and, and no one tells you how to program. But keeping track of who is working on what, what tasks need to be done, how many things should you be working on at a time, when and how do we actually communicate with each other about what we need from each other to get our programming done. In agile methodologies, that's all very structured. So the overhead of organizing work is thought through very hard. And then once you actually go off to do the work, you do it autonomously. Um, So what extreme programming did is it really pushed that to uh, an extreme. Uh, It is zero distraction once you're working. It's very clear who's working on what. You know what you're working on. There's a very set time where you talk to other people about what you might need from them. And then you go and actually do the coding you're supposed to do. And it's one thing at a time. And they sit two people at a screen because two people sitting at the same screen Concentrate harder and produce better code than one person whose mind might wander. Uh, They finish by four because by that point they're exhausted and there's no possible way they can do no work. They're not on email. They're not on Slack. All of the admin messages that typically make up organizational life go to the team lead who will handle it on behalf of the team. It's just purified. We just want you to write great code and everything else will figure out how to do it. Obviously, that's a very extreme example, hence the name extreme programming. But what I like about all of these agile examples is that they show you that it's possible to separate the organizational work from the execution and make the former quite intentional and structured while keeping the latter very independent and autonomous.
1: Another strategy that seems to be used a lot in computer coding is uh, the idea of sprints, of, uh, of, get, uh, of having a sort of uh, uh, period on which you have really focused attention. Why does that work?
0: Well, this goes down you know, back to the fundamental critique of the hyperactive hive mind, which is that the human brain cannot switch targets of attention quickly. Uh, mm. It takes time. I mean, if, if I want to change from an article I'm writing to a discussion I'm having on email, it might take 10 or 15 minutes until I've completely switched over all of the relevant cognitive context to that email discussion. I have to suppress certain neural networks. I have to uh, amplify other ones. It's a, it's a complicated, long process. We can measure this. Uh, We can measure this directly in the lab. If you keep trying to switch your attention and going back and forth very quickly, it just muddles the whole brain. And this is the issue with, for example, checking an inbox once every six minutes is that that glance at the inbox initiates one of these switches of your Uh, target of attention but then before that switch can finish you abort that switch and go back to the original thing you're trying to work on so you you screech on the brakes over there and then you try to go back to the context where you are before and get that going again but before you can completely get lost in that new context you look at your inbox again and now you've initiated a new context switch but before (laughs) that can finish you screech on the brakes and turn back to the others and this is why by 2 p.m in the afternoon we're completely exhausted we feel overwhelmed by work Ironically, we only have energy left to just sit in our inbox for the rest of the day because our brain literally can't do that. It can't go back and forth so fast. In software development where they care a lot more about how the work actually happens, they're big on the notion of sprints where they will literally say, we're going into this room and we're gonna work on this. Right? We're gonna work on this program. This team's gonna work on this code and it is all we're gonna do. Uh, this is a methodology that you can apply outside of just software developing. There's a book called Sprint by, I think, Jake Knapp and some others that looks at how Google applied Sprint methodology to other projects, not just coding. And at the key of it is that you go into this room and you're just working on one thing. There's no email in that room. There's no phones you can look at in that room. You're only work looking at the one thing. And what this is harnessing is that in the absence of all those rapid context shifts, you just get more out of your brain. You think clear, you think better, you're less exhausted, you're less anxious. These are the type of things we don't think about in the standard workplace. We just say, I don't know, it would be convenient for me if Andrew would answer my email real quick because in the moment I kind of need this information and we're really have not thought more systematically in our organization about how such information should be found. So can we just all answer our email? And on paper, it sounds great. Like I get information as I need on demand but it just fundamentally mismatches with the way our brain works. If our brain was a computer processor, we would be fine. A computer processor is agnostic to the op code it is executing the moment. It just chug, chug, chugs. It doesn't care. The human brain is not a processor. It is slow to change attention.
1: What about for a uh, firm that's, that's not doing computer programming, but doing something like providing consulting services? Are there uh, strategies that you think can be effective for them to better manage the, uh, the influx of email?
0: And my overall recommendation is that you break down what you do as a team or organization into the constituent processes, the things you do again and again that make up your typical work. Uh, And then for each of these, ask the question, how do we actually want to implement it? Where does the information come in? Where do we store it? Um, How do we assign work? When do we talk or collaborate about it? How and when do we talk and collaborate about it? You actually have to build out implementations of these processes one by one with the goal of reducing unscheduled messages you have to respond to. This is the main driver of having to keep checking inboxes and keep having uh, to do context shifts. How you do that? Well, it really depends on the process. You know, What type of work, what type of process within that work, there's, a, there's a, a wild variety of what you might be trying to improve here, and therefore a wild variety of what those improvements might look like. And, and so if you're a consulting firm, uh, now you may have a much clearer protocol about how you interact with your clients and where that information goes and how it gets assigned to people and how you make sure it gets done. Uh, internally, there must might be much clearer processes about how the white papers you produce actually move through its stages in such a way that it's not just, I'll grab you with email when I need you, we'll bounce this around. Instead, it's it goes mm. here, and when I'm done, it moves to this Dropbox, and I close the business Wednesday, the designer takes it, and the comments go on that, whatever, you've worked it all out so that these things can get executed without requiring that many just unscheduled messages that have to be responded to. So it's quite bespoke what these solutions look like, but they're very widely applicable.
1: Economist Robert Solow famously said in 1987 that you could see the computer revolution everywhere except in the productivity statistics. Do you think it's actually flipped? Do you think the overuse of email is causing now uh, a decline in productivity? Is this one of the causes of the the productivity slowdown that we've we've seen in the last couple of decades across the advanced world?
0: Uh, I think it is. I, I think it definitely is. And in fact, I think the reason why we have not seen a more pronounced downturn is that we've basically just added a lot of hours off the books. So we invented ubiquitous high-speed wireless networks and portable electronics. So now people can do more work in more places in a way that doesn't necessarily get captured in the productivity calculation. So we throw more hours at the issue just to stay roughly in the same place. So I think it's been a huge issue. Uh, Productivity in general has been very psychologically naive and and I want to just differentiate that slightly. There, there's one element of psychology that we think a lot about in management circles, which is motivational psychology. Sure, we think a lot about incentives and how do we make sure people are motivated to reach their objectives, but we think not a bit about how the human brain actually functions. And so if I put you in an environment where you have to work on 12 different things at the same time and have 25 different conversations you have to tend to... Uh, it is a disaster for the human brain. It would be like if I ran an auto factory and I, I kept it really hot, you know, because I thought I was it was saving money on the AC bill, but it was causing the, the motor oil to get runny on the robot arms and they were moving at, you know, a, a quarter of their possible speed and it was really slowing down the car production. I would say this is crazy. You have to stop that. Your, your, your environment is terrible for these robots. We're getting a very low return on all the investment we made in it. Um, I don't care that you think it's a little cheaper to have the air conditioners off. Obviously, we're losing way more money by building these cars so slow. That's what's happening in the average office. You know, We're like, well, it's convenient that I can get an answer from people in my email. Meanwhile, we've created an environment where people are probably working at a quarter of their cognitive potential. I think it's a real disaster is because we are psychologically naive when we talk about how work should actually be organized. And so, yes, I think the back office IT revolution, you know, Robert Gordon talks about this as well at Stanford, uh, the back office IT revolution was a huge productivity boon, and we saw that clearly in the data when you can move information into databases, when you could network information systems, when you could get just-in-time inventory systems. Huge boon to productivity. Um, I can go into a, uh, you know, a, a, a mainframe to look up records as opposed to having to go into filing cabinets. Huge boon to productivity. The front office IT revolution has largely been a failure, and there's just been a lot of issues with it. Uh, the first thing that happened is we brought personal computers to the office and we say, oh, we're going to be so productive because we can fire all the support staff. You can type yourself on the uh, on the computer. You can send your own messages using email. You can enter your own hours into a into this work uh, time log program. We don't have to have separate people to come and take the timesheets. Aren't we aren't we really uh, saving money and being more productive? But they never actually assess the cost to the individual who now had to do all that extra work. it's the famous economic adage, it makes no sense for the the person who is both the best lawyer and the best typist in town to do their own typing. It's economically quite inefficient, but we basically made all of our skilled knowledge workers into glorified typists by pushing all this other work onto their plate, and it made us less productive. And then email came along, and we created this psychologically devastating uh, environment of have constant back and forth, zero friction communication, which made it even harder to get work done Uh, I get worked up about this question because as someone who studies tech and culture, I think tech was really helping productivity, really helping productivity, really helping productivity, and then boom, we shot ourselves in the foot. And we're in a terrible situation right now, and we're only just starting to really realize this.
1: So if the front office IT revolution has been so bad for productivity, why do we see so few firms experimenting with the sort of uh, approaches that uh, that, that you, you talk about? I mean, you have this wonderful example of uh, Lasse Rheingarns, who uh, uh, has a, a tech startup that implemented a five-hour workday and banned internal email. But... They're so much the exception. You know, why aren't uh, firms like McKinsey, which uh, uh, focused on on exactly this question of boost, boosting boosting pro- productivity, why aren't they experimenting with much more radical ways uh, of, uh, of of re- ensuring that email doesn't gum up the works?
0: You know, these experiments are now starting to happen at a, at a level they weren't until recently. But I, I think there's two main factors that slow down innovation here, and. I even hesitate to say slow down because I went back and looked at other historical examples of technological revolutions being integrated into commerce, and it takes a while. So I don't actually know that we're behind schedule. I mean, you can look at how long it took to figure out continuous assembly line manufacturing. You could look at how long it took to efficiently integrate electric motors into industrial manufacturing. I wrote about that in The New Yorker last year. Um, It takes a while, but but, so I don't know that we're behind schedule. I mean, knowledge work in the age of ubiquitous high-speed digital communications is only about 20 years old. So I don't know that we're behind schedule, but there's two forces that are pushing back on this. One is this autonomy principle that's so ingrained, the Peter Drucker autonomy principle. We just are not used to this idea of thinking How work is organized is something we need to figure out as an organization and tweak and talk about an experiment. We are just very used to the idea that that is up to the individual. It's none of my business how you organize your work. Let's all just kind of rock and roll and figure things out. So we should not underestimate the degree to which autonomy culture is incredibly powerful in work. Uh, Drucker called it management by objectives. That's his term. Fix the objective, leave it to the individual. Fix the objective, leave it to the individual. That's super ingrained uh, in our culture, though that is starting to fray. Um, the second is it's hard. It's really complicated. It's why I t- I talk in great length about this trouble that Ford went through trying to get the continuous motion assembly line to work. It was a huge pain. He had to spend a ton of money. They had to hire a lot more staff. He had to invent a lot more technologies. It did not work at first. Uh, it was very frustrating. If you have an assembly line, that works almost all the way. It basically doesn't work at all because if one station on that assembly line <laughs> Is too slow. The whole thing stops. Like, could you imagine if you're there, 1915 at the Ford, you know, uh, the Ford plant in Detroit, and you're building cars in a very natural, convenient way? It's just like we have a team of craftsmen around a chassis on a, on sawhorses, and we build a car. And of course, this is how you build cars. And Ford comes in and is like, "I'm going to pull these things with a chain." And I invented this machine that can drill. 46 different holes into an engine block simultaneously so we can, you're like, what what are you talking about? This is like wildly annoying and obtuse. And and you imagine being a Ford investor and like, you want to hire, you want to double the number of managers and and you want to double our capital costs. We have no money right now. You want to double our capital costs and trying to get this factory working. But it eventually brought the time to produce the Model T, the man, the man hours from 12 hours per car down to about 93 minutes. Uh, So it's just a huge pain. And I often underscore that. It's a huge pain. So I, I really think the innovation is going to happen first in startups because they don't have built-in cultures and they're more nimble. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. This is mm. going to build up institutional expertise in those startups about alternative process implementations that work better than the hive mind, uh, the the technological equivalent of whatever the assembly line is going to be. That's going to move its way up to slightly larger and, and larger still technology companies. And then we're going to see a horizontal transfer I think of this expertise out of tech after that is probably what'll happen. Uh, I had an article recently where I was talking about, uh, I was quoting someone else, a tech entrepreneur from Scotland, who was talking about the role that private equity will probably use in spreading these innovations because private equity can then bring on board these subject matter experts that develop their tools and their expertise in tech, and then go start buying up companies after companies in other sectors using that expertise to get another 20 to 40% efficiency out of the companies because they get rid of the hive mind and so then that's going to really start seeding it. So I think it's going to be rapid when the change happens. That first stage of innovation in tech companies, which I document in my book, I think is happening right now. So we're probably just about on schedule. We're about 20 25 years into the world knowledge work with digital computer networks widely available and we're starting to see the first steps that are going to pick up speed into bigger steps into a full out sprint and so we might be closer than we think in the hive mind becoming much more rare.
1: Not everyone naturally associates uh, Henry Ford style industrial production with uh, with living a, a happier life or, or being happier at work. but. One of the aspects of it that I don't think you touch on in your books, but I have heard you mention in your podcast, is the idea that moving away from the hyperactive hired mind might also provide a better work-life balance, and in particular might be important for uh, reducing the gender pay gap, given that women carry most of the burden of caring responsibilities. How do you think about changing our relationship with email also allowing us to uh, improve our relationship with our kids. Well,
0: I, I think there's a lot of these positive externalities that are going to come from leaving behind a hive mind. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that about Ford, because I have to I make this point, and I have to make it in some, with some care and some detail in the book, that the, the thing that is useful to pull away from Henry Ford is just the general idea of being willing to radically rethink how work happens we should draw no lessons from the actual changes he made. <laughs> there is very few parallels between the process of building a car and the process of writing computer code or, or writing ad copy. Uh, the innovations he put in place, the assembly line was you know, quite uh, monotonous and dehumanizing for the workers, though it did lead to shorter work days and, and larger uh, hourly wages as a compensation for its monotony. I have no interest in the assembly line, the specifics of that, of having to tell us anything about what work should be like. In fact, Drucker is right. We have to be very autonomous in how we execute work. But Ford's willingness to rethink from first principles how work might function is something we should take away. So if we turn to the world of knowledge work and the hyperactive hive mind, this is one of these great examples, I think, in the history of of work and work reform, where there's a general alignment between all parties. The management class likes the idea of getting rid of the hive mind because more value is produced. <laughs> Their workers are, are you know, 2x more productive when they're not context switching uh, every five minutes. It's a pain to get away from the hive mind, but when you when you do, you, you reap real rewards. But for workers, it's also a huge win because the hyperactive hive mind makes us miserable. It feels terrible to have to constantly be switching our context and have more work on our plate than we can handle and have this all be so informal and so ad hoc. So moving away from that should make us happier uh, as workers as well. To your point, one of the ways this is gonna make us happier is that the informality and ad hoc nature of the hyperactive hive mind creates a lot of unintentional inequities. When how work is assigned, how work is tracked, how work is actually executed is left just up to the whim, left up to just messages and how things happen, you get all sorts of unexpected consequences. So let's say, for example, uh, you're more conscientious. You score higher on the conscientious trait on the big five personality trait. You are going to say yes more often to this uncontrolled, untracked, unorganized, incoming flow of potential obligations and duties and projects you could take on. You're going to say yes too much uh, because mm. you're, you're, you have individuals who are asking you and you're conscientious. And now you're going to have more on your plate. You're going to be more stressed. You're going to uh, probably spend less time on the key projects that make a difference. That's a problem. Let's say like you're talking about that you have to care for someone at home. You have kids at home or you're taking care of an older relative who is sick or something like this. Uh, And this makes it difficult for you to be a part of the hyperactive, informal back and forth that happens late at night or earlier in the morning. Now you're being held back. But these are inequities that don't actually serve the company. I think uh, trying to bias, let's say, success towards people that are less conscientious is not actually what you want to do because uh, they just get a bunch of jerks in charge, which is actually a, a real problem. Um, biasing towards young people accidentally, because the hyperactive hive mind rewards people that can just sort of be part of this informal back and forth. Well, that's not great because now you're taking a lot of experience out of your out of your work pipeline and and your company becomes more immature. So I think there's huge inequities that happen when work is very informal. And when we when we instead mm. say no, mm. no, no, like an agile, you should not work on more than two projects at a time. We're really clear about what they are. We've structured the communication. The work fits nicely in the workday. You can express your talent at its highest level, not have these other things involved. I think it's much better. I think it's just much better for everyone involved. Um, I think people are going to enjoy work more. And I think the people who own these companies are going to get more work out of their employees. Like It's a positive for almost everyone except for maybe the Slack Corporation.
1: And what does this do for work-life balance and uh, for our relationship with our kids? Uh, it makes it much better, right? So
0: when work is more structured, uh, you can structure its role in your life. When it's an, an ongoing ad hoc, just back and forth, you have more on your plate than you can handle, and it's all informally being negotiated. You're constantly on call. It's very difficult to be done with work. Uh, if you look at the extreme programmers, by contrast, they rarely work. They don't work past four. Like That's pretty rare because it's, they're pretty tired because it's pretty intense. And there's nothing for them to do after that. I mean, they have their project lead does their communication on their behalf their, their life is much more focused. You're working on this feature and you're coding. And then you, you get tired because you can only do so much coding in a day. So you're done. Go rest. You know, I mean, I, I just think highly structured when you, when you highly structure how work is organized, assigned, reviewed, and communicated about, you just, you release a lot of time off people's plate. You release a lot of uh, unpredictable communication demands off people's plate. You allow them to structure their lives. This is what Lice Reingolds talks about at his company. I mean, they, they only work, whatever it is, five hours a day, and they're killing it over there. They're doing great. and <laughs> These employees are so much happier. Um, so this, w- this would do wonders. I mean, I just think people would be so much happier. Their families would be stronger. They'd be happier. All the stuff we talked about with digital minimalism, you could do that stuff more, walk and spend time with friends. Uh, really, the hive mind is a public health menace
1: that we just don't realize right now. Final questions, Cal. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Uh, oh, that's a good question because I was I was uh, writing advice professionally as a teenager, so I was, <laughs> I was I was I was already trying to give <laughs> myself uh, give myself um, advice uh, as a young person. Um, you know, it's a good question. Uh, let me think back. Is, is, so, would you by, you mean knowing what I know now, uh, what would I yes. go back and say? Yeah, all right. Well, I would say invest in Apple. So that would be, uh, but, (laughs) um, more, I'm I'm thinking about mistakes learned. Well, okay. Here's one thing I would say. Um, you know, I had an epiphany at some point in my twenties, uh, where up until that point I had put way too much effort. I I had what I would call the, this is big in the early two thousands, the hack mindset, so I, I still had this mindset as I was a grad student in my young twenties that uh, with the right hack, if you had the right clever way of approaching something, you could get big returns for less effort. And uh, and if you just thought about things, if you're creative and got got to the point, you could you know get a lot done with a lot less time. And, and I eventually had an epiphany at, epiphany at some point that laid the foundation that became the book Deep Work, which was it's not there's not shortcuts all right, uh, there's just stuff that gets in in the way of your path. So find the stuff that's most valuable, spend as much time on that as possible, ignore as much of the other stuff as possible. It took me about six or seven years, I think, to figure that out um, from when I really got interested in productivity stuff as a teenager. So that might've been useful to know earlier on. Uh, Pick the stuff that seems important, give it your all, don't feel bad about ignoring the other stuff, that's just distraction. Uh, You have a long path. You have to hike. You can't make that path shorter. What you can do is try to get some of the rocks and obstacles out of the way uh, in front of you.
1: What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, this, I
0: mean, that would be part of it. Um, You know, back then there was a period where I was more enamored by what was known as productivity prawn, that with the right system. You could make work like relatively effortless. You'd get the right results that you could basically systematize interesting accomplishment. And, and I wrote an article about this l- last summer. It was called The Rise and Fall of Getting Things Done. And it talked about the rise of this idea in the early 2000s and how it eventually crashed. Um, I, because I don't believe that anymore. I, I, I talk about it now on my podcast, if you're organized and have good systems and good tools and you, you're intentional about that, you can make your work life 20% easier. You get rid of some rough edges and forgotten stuff and and, and mental overhead. Uh, But in the end, you know, work is hard. It's meaningful, but hard. There's no shortcut. So you might as well take the energy you have and focus it on the things that matter. So I I no longer believe, like I once did, that having the right systems or tools can almost completely determine your professional success.
1: When are you most happy?
0: Uh, I am happy Well, when I'm nowhere near an inbox. Just <laughs> <It> stress me <laughs> out. <laughs> um, so I, you know, when I'm either with people I care about, just doing that with no work on my mind. So I'm really big about clear shutdown routines, like really clearing my head of every open work from loop when I'm done with the work day. Uh, so it's not I I cannot go back and forth. I can't kind of be with my family, but also need to check some email. So if I'm completely clear of any professional open loops in my mind with someone I care about, I really, that I'm very happy. Or if I'm thinking just pure thinking, you know, I'm trying to get a math proof to click or trying to get an article that I'm working on, a magazine article, get that, get the, get it the flow. And you can just feel it's not working, it's not working now, it's working. That, that moment of pure ideation and creation, I try to spend as much of my professional time as possible doing that. And as much of my time outside of work being with people So the whole game is minimizing everything else, which is everything else that people think about as work, all the email, all the slack, all the calendars, et cetera.
1: What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: Um, You know, stay mentally healthy. One thing I've been doing this year, which has been useful is I've recommitted to reading. I read five to six books a month, and I found that that has been, that's been a great discipline. I found it very mentally invigorating. Um. I just found the time for it. I said, "This is what I'm going to do," and I'll work backwards to figure out how I'm going to make that work. And that's been a real, uh, that's been really good for me. I think it's it's become a good default activity. So not a phone, not a screen, reading, engaging with ideas, Uh, and then physically, um, you know, I I have this theory that there it's like a use it or lose it theory. I just think that. Uh, every day, the human body needs to cover a good amount of distance outside because we're wired to do that. And every day your major muscle groups should get a very intense challenge, even if for only five minutes. So, uh, this is what I've been doing. I did all throughout the pandemic, 10,000 steps a day outside, uh, thousand pull-ups a month. So 30 something pull-ups a day because pull-ups, I feel like just every single muscle in your body has to get temporarily used hard and just use that as a foundation. So your legs move a lot, your muscles get a burn every day. Something about that seems paleolithically inspired, and, and that's been my strategy.
1: Yes, I quite like the uh, life maxim that you should be hungry and breathless at least once every day. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Um,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely guilty pleasures. Uh, uh, you know, I like a good pint, so I have to be careful about that <laughs> um, from like a weight Perspective, uh, so but I do I do like a good beer, uh, when I can get my hands on it. Um, I I don't have a lot of screen issues, as you might imagine. I don't you know, there's not a lot I watch. There's not a lot of interesting on my phone. It turns out if you don't use social media, by the way, your phone's pretty boring. <laughs> you know i mean like, <laughs> it's occasionally interesting if there's a sports thing going on and this and it's tense and you can't get to a tv to watch it okay it's very interesting or if you're lost and you need to look up directions it's very interesting in that moment um but it's a really bad source of default entertainment when you take social media out so i'm, I'm like a one person anthrop- anthropological experiment here what happens when you don't uh when you don't have uh, social media um so yeah you know maybe maybe uh I have to my waistline has to be careful that my my enjoyment of the the occasional beer has to remain sufficiently occasional
1: And finally, Cal, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Um, that's a good question uh, when it comes to a couple thinkers that have been uh, really influential to me on that i, I maybe a, a big picture answer would be a book that was influential to me in thinking about the development of an ethical life. So it's kind of a meta answer because it's not about a particular ethical system. Uh, There's this book by a, a professor called Henry Lee Miller, and the book was called Lincoln's Virtues. And it was a moral biography of Abraham Lincoln. So it's a biography that tried to focus entirely on the development of Lincoln's ethical system, like actually trying to track down the influences and sources, but then also try to map out how it developed and changed and broadened over time, and 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 how it came into fruition, and why that's been a really important book for me, very influential to me, is that it it what it showed is someone who matured and developed their ethical foundation over time through experience and experimentation, they would reading and experimentation and sharpening, and and it. Blossomed as he reached this sort of full mature adulthood into something very sophisticated and very impactful to the world, um, and it wasn't there fully formed when he was a kid, and it developed over time. And so as a that has been very influential because it, it pushes me to, to keep thinking and pushing, to bring in information, to challenge myself, to reflect on my experiences, to expose myself to the best thinking I can, and all sorts of issues, and, and seeing the the formation of an ethical core. Uh, as a commitment, as a as a life process, and not as something that you just choose one day, like you would choose a suit of co- uh, clothes. So that 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 one book, that Henry Lee Miller, um, ethical biography, was very influential for me.
1: Your grandfather was a Baptist minister. Did he have uh, much of an influence in your thinking about ethics?
0: Well, yeah, he he was a a minister, but also a a great academic and theologian. Uh, this is so it. Um, so definitely an influence on me Uh, he was a Baptist apologist which was very rare that is to say someone who was uh, he was Southern Baptist but also um, incredible learned right he had multiple PhDs he would spend time with Heschel and Carl Jung um, uh, and Niebuhr at Harvard and sort of this uh, very intellectual man who wrote all of these academic all these academic books so he was one of the few Baptist apologists who actually tried to understand his theological foundation and explain it to others and justify it against other different types of worldviews. And so he has been very influential. He was very influential in my life. Um, you know, I, I knew him until he was alive until I was 18. So I, I knew him my entire childhood uh, and mm-hmm. he's left behind a legacy of his work, um, but his curiosity and joy with the world of ideas and the way that he would fearlessly go out there, that's why I say it was very rare to be a Southern Baptist apologist. This was at, this was right at the incipient beginning of the fundamentalism movement within Southern Baptism, which is the opposite of that, which is, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Let me tell you what is right. And the important thing is that we punish people who we think don't believe this. He was the exact opposite. He, he was just wanted to get out there and encounter full-throated all of the different ideas and philosophies and views of the world, sophisticated ideas, and really understand them. And he didn't see them as a threat to his fundamental identity as a sort of religious uh, Southern American Christian. He he thought it would strengthen that. I think it's very influential as the opposite of what we see today. <laughs> I think uh, with most people in most contexts, at least what we see reflected on social media, I love that approach of, let me approach the very smartest people and best ideas that maybe are not exactly what my ideas are, and let me use them as a way of strengthening strengthening my, my convictions to understand the world, not as something to fear or, or to try to put down. So yeah, he was a, definitely an intellectual inspiration.
1: Well, between uh, President Lincoln and John Newport, that seems exactly the moment to uh, close our conversation. Uh, Cal Newport, uh, computer scientist and attention management thinker, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today.
0: Well, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you might enjoy going back and listening to our conversation with uh, Marie Crabb uh, and also the discussion with Jonathan Haidt. We're always trying to get the ideas in the podcast out to more people. Uh, So if you have a moment to share this episode on your favourite social media platform, yes, I understand the irony, uh, or just to mention it to a friend, uh, we'd be most grateful. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.